Hey, welcome to New River Church's podcast. We're really glad you decided to join us today. We pray that this message blesses you and encourages you. If you're looking for some more information about New River Church, just look us up at newriverchurch.org. We're going to be in Acts chapter 10, and what I want to talk about this morning is that God is really setting us up for divine appointments. I don't know whether you realize that or not, but God has a place and a role for you. Shakespeare said, all the world's a stage, and we each have our own role, and we enter and we exit, and we play many roles over the course of our lives, and that lives adds up to about 70 years. And I believe that you and I are uniquely placed where we are today because God wants to do an extravagant work of grace through you to people around you. We're not just a bunch of, uh, we're just not a bunch of uh, molecular and cellular mess that crawl out of the ocean billions and billions and billions of years ago and we started growing legs and ears and arms and you name it and we started uh, uh, standing up straight and then we got to the point where you stand up straight and now we just live uh, this biological life on our own terms where we're just trying to get our slice of the American pie and just building up, basically building up our kingdom because we've made ourselves our own God and we're comfortable with our God and we like our God and we love our God and we pamper our God. But God says, hey, listen, you're not God. I'm going to invade your life and I want to have a straight talk with you and I just want to tell you, you've missed a mark, son. I'm God. I'm the one true God. You are the slave. I'm the master. You're the servant. You're the clay. I'm the potter. You are the one that needs me. I don't need you. In fact, it's by grace through faith alone that he even moves into our life and says, I choose you. We sung a song this morning about I choose to worship. Okay, God, it's 10 o'clock. I'm going to get up. I choose to worship you. I choose to do this for you. I choose to be this for you. I will trust you this much. I will believe you this much. I will serve you in this capacity, and I will only go this far. And the message today is that God has to do a work in you and in me and in New River to position ourselves to be somewhere among people that he is preordained. He has divine appointments for you and I over the next seven days. He has divine appointments for the church at large. Now listen up, sister. I don't have the amen crew that I had in the morning, so I need you to pay attention. I need you to keep me encouraged, and I need you to light the fire. Yes, I'm talking to you. You go ahead and look up at me. I need you. I need you. I don't have the, I don't have the Willie Bench. Okay? Okay? I don't have the... I need you to talk back to me. I need you to keep me on the rails. I need to know what direction I need to go into, and I trust you, and I trust the Spirit of God in you, so I need you to look up, and uh, you just kind of poke me and prod me, and you encourage me, and I'll know exactly where to camp out, especially with uh, Lyle's with us. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 16, and I want to propose to you that over the next seven days, that when you pull your calendar up... see. I was used to calling my own shots. I was used to setting my own calendar, and quite honestly, I liked that. I could schedule breakfast, lunch, dinner, recreation, and on Thursday afternoons, a nice nap. That's changed. Now they're telling me, you got to be in Baltimore here, you got to be in Long Island there, you got to go up to Boston, you got to be here, you got to be there, you got to be with this union, you got to be with this hospital, you got to be with these people. This is what you got to do. So now I live in a situation where I have people setting my schedule and calling the shots. And quite honestly, I don't like that. I'm kind of comfortable sitting at home in my sweatpants. In a dress shirt and coat and my furry L.L. Bean slippers in front of that monitor, smiling and giving them a good presentation on how they can retire with confidence and comfort down the road, Marvin. So that's the kind of world that I'm used to. But now they're saying, hey, Dave, you got to get out of that chair and you're going to have to get dressed up and you have to go out and you're going to have to spend some time with the people. It's now time to get busy. And I want to propose to you that God is saying to us through today's message is, hey, it's time to get up. 
It's time to get up. It's time to get dressed up. It's time to get out. It's time to get busy. And I want you to be about my work, working and living my schedule as opposed to yours that clashes up and gets his day in and day out. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 10. Before we jump in there, I want to share with you that there's three characters here, or three real people, not characters. But there's Simon called Peter. So I'm going to call him Peter. Just this helps me keep it simple because I read it a couple of times and I tend to get confused. But there's Simon. And then there's another Simon the Tanner. We're just going to call him Tanner. You know, like he was on the Bold and Beautiful or as Guiding Light as the World Turns. Tanner, Storm Chase. So we're going to use Tanner here. We got Peter Tanner, and then we have Cornelius, and I trip up on that when I get excited and I say the word Cornelius, no telling what comes out, so I'm just going to shorten it and call him Cornell. So those are our three characters, and we're going to go into Acts chapter 10, verses 1. There was a man, and some translations say a certain man, and I want to propose to you that God's going to bring a certain person across your life in the next seven days. A certain person, a God-ordained person, something or someone that desperately needs something that you have to give and to share. The Bible tells us that we should be prepared in and out of season to give reason for our hope. And God's going to bring people into our lives over the next seven days that's going to need a word of hope, a word of encouragement, a kind handshake, a pat on the back, friendly eyes, a nice smile, something that just says, hey, listen, I see you. I see you. We have, uh, we, we've uh, hosted exchange students from China for quite some time now. And what I've noticed is, is uh, uh, the Asian culture is not so much touchy-feely, very stoic, okay, uh, very stoic. So they're not used to the human touch. And in fact, you know, I'm kind of grabby, you know, I'll put my arm around you, I'll hug you. I like that human touch. But I remember the first time when our student came in, I walked up and I gave him a handshake and I pulled him in, Kenny, I pulled him in, I put my hand on the back and it was like stiffened up. Wanted nothing to do with that. Wasn't getting that in their own home. Why would they travel 13 hours on a plane and come into a stranger's house and, and, and be open to that? So the point of the matter is, is God wants you to touch people in a very human, soft, sensitive, caring, forgiving in loving manner. And whether you shake hands or it's through the eyes or through the mouth or a pat on the back, listen, somebody's going to come across your life this week that needs the very touch of Jesus. And you may not even realize it. You may not even understand the situation, but when you come in their life, it's like the woman with the bleeding disorder that couldn't find any hope, any help, no wholeness anywhere in the entire world. And they come up and they touch you. And it's like they reached out and they touched the hem of Jesus' garment and boom, their lives are changed forever because you were there, the right person, right place, right time, moving and having Jesus' spirit in you and through you and touching their lives. And that's what's precisely going to take place here with Peter, Simon, the Tanner, and uh, Cornell. There was a certain man, I'm just getting started, that was just three words there, Kenny, just getting started here. Uh, uh, again, hold me accountable. Because if I get warmed up like a diesel, we're going to hop on I-95 and spend about four hours there. <laughs> I, uh, I'm doing the uh, reading through the Bible in a year, and I'm doing it with Mike Yaka and uh, TJ. And I like that because I'm going to be honest with you. I've been faithful reading Scripture for 30 years. I was discipled. I was so I was so blessed to come under a tutelage of a carpenter who built homes by trade. Nobody fancy. Nobody fancy. No big reputation. He has discipled hundreds of men like my son. And the one takeaway was, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds 
from the mouth of God. And from day one, that Bible has been alive. It's been a treasure for me. And so I enjoy spending time in God's Word and meditating on God's Word and just being open to God's Word. And a nice thing about that is I get to do it with Mike Yaka and uh, uh, TJ this, this year. So I have that accountability, and I enjoy that. So let's go to the Scripture again. Here is Cornelius. We li- he lived in Caesarea. He was captain of the Italian guard stationed there. He was a thoroughly good man. He had led everyone in his house to live worshipfully before God. He was always helping people in need, and he had the habit of prayer. And then there was this one day, about three o'clock in the afternoon, he had a vision. What's important here is God spoke to the lost man before he spoke to the Christian Peter. One day, he moves in a vision to Cornelius, and he shows what Cornelius needs to do. And an angel of God, as real as his next door neighbor, came in and said, Cornell. Cornell stared hard, wondering if he was seeing things. And then he said, what do you want, sir? Humble. The angel said, your prayers, ooh, God's listening to the prayers of a lost man, your prayers and your neighborly acts have brought you to God's attention. Who here wants God's attention? Who wants, I do. I'm going to be honest with you. I grew up and I felt like I didn't get a whole lot of attention. I'm going to be honest with you. When I grew up, I always felt that I was second, third, fourth, maybe fifth best. I always knew, Kenny, that I had a lot of potential in me. I always knew that from day one, that I knew that God put potential in my life, but I was surrounded with people that didn't see that potential, didn't honor that potential, and tried to squash that potential for whatever reasons. So for a long time in my life, I grew up thinking that I was subpar, that I was damaged goods, that I would never amount to anything. I am here by the grace of God alone. I want to share with you, listen, God is able to do exceedingly more and abundant than you could ever think or ask or dream about if you're just yielded and sold out to his Holy Spirit. And this is what's going on here, is that one particular day, he's having a vision, your prayers, you have God's attention, here's what you're to do. And then the angel says to Cornell, send men to Joppa to get Simon. That's called Peter. And he's staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is down by the sea. As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called servants and one particular devout soldier from the guard. And he went over with them in great detail everything that had just happened. And then sent them off to Joppa. That's important. The next day, as the three travelers were approaching the town, the very next day, God's Spirit spoke to the lost man. Now he's turning his attention to the saved man, Peter. And the next day, Peter got hungry. Listen, God can work in the everyday common things in your life. All too often as Christians, what we think about is the grand thing, the big thing, the big vision, the big work, something I can put my name on, something I can say, hey, look at me and God. Look what we partnered on. We're working on this together. We want that glory. We want that honor. We want to participate in the grand things. And I want to propose to you that God works in the everyday common places of life. And you may be bored to death. You may wake up one morning like me and say, wow, this is mundane. There is nothing on the schedule. I, as a matter of fact, I might pack up the truck and go do a little fishing today. The day is so boring. The tasks are so small. I'm just going to go about my own business. And here we find in the everyday normal situation where Peter's hungry and he goes up to the rooftop, what happens? God moves in that hunger and speaks to him, not once, not twice, but three visions the same vision. It said Peter got hungry and he started thinking about lunch. And while lunch was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the skies open up, something that looked like a huge blanket lowered by ropes at four corners, settled on the ground, and every kind of amp. Remember, Peter's a devout Jewish boy. He's a Jewish man at this point in time. Every kind of animal and reptile and bird you could think of was on it. One day, then a voice. And the voice said, go to it, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter, the good good Jewish fellow, says, oh, no, 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 God. No, 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 Lord. Oh, oh, no, Lord. I've never so much as tasted food that was not kosher. 
He's talking about not even a Hebrew national hot dog at this point. The voice came a second time. If God says it's okay, it's okay. This happened once, twice, three times. And then the blanket folded up. It was pulled back up into the skies. I want to suggest to you that God enters our comfort zones for the sole purpose of knocking us out of the same comfort zones. Peter was really comfortable I'd like to have Peter's calling. We take a family vacation every year, and we love the Outer Banks, and I save up the hotel points, so we're able to stay at a nice hotel on the beach. And I like to open up the, the sliding glass doors, and I like to sit on the table, and I like to kick back and relax, and I love to hear the ocean waves crash in 11, 12, 1, 2 in the morning. If we're close enough, later on I might take a walk on the beach, and I love to feel the mist. I love to sit under the cool umbrella. I like to kick back with that big, white, soft, fluffy beach towel. I got it behind my head. Uh, and, and, and more than likely, I might slip into a nap and, and, and my wife nudges me because it's such a good nap. I might actually start snoring and I'm disturbing the seagulls and I can hear the seagulls going, Pew. you get the point. That's my kind of ministry. I go down there. I drive up and down the street and there's, and, and there's always the hotel and then there's like three churches. Bethesda by the sea, St. Peter by the sea. And it's like, and I'm hoping, I'm hoping I can pull in a parking lot that says, uh, 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 your church by the sea. I'd like to have that calling. And here Peter is. He's sitting up here on the rooftop, and he's hungry. And God starts speaking to him. And Peter is comfortable with his lot in life. He is not in Jerusalem wrangling with the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the high priests. He is not meeting it out with the deacons and the elders in the local church. He is away from all the politics. He's away from all of the action. He's on a sabbatical. He's laid up here at the Hilton Garden Inn in Joppa, modern-day Tel Aviv. But even though it's a small town, we know that is part of a much larger, dynamic, more robust economic, political, and religious system. But for the time being, Peter has a timeout by this nice Hilton Garden Inn on the sea. And I got to be honest with you, that sounds pretty good to me. That'd be a nice place to camp out for an extended period of time. But not only is he comfortable where he physically is, he's comfortable with his relationships. And God spoke to Cornelius, the Gentile. He may or may not have been a, a Samaritan, but we know that he was a Roman. And God began speaking in a man whose heart was already ready. This guy was already living up to the Old Testament law. He was already Already following the dietary restrictions. He was already giving alms, and here this lost man is praying, and all of these things about Cornelius is bundled up, and someone or something takes it up to the very throne room of God and says, Hey, listen, Cornell, I hear you. You have my attention. I am solely focused on you, Cornell. I know exactly what you need. What you need is a God fearing, spirit filled individual walking up into your assembly and opening up the Word of God and allowing that to become alive and active and buried in the deep recesses of the heart and the soul of the human being. Because Jesus knew that one plant, one man waters, one man plants, but it's God at the end of the day multiplies. And God knew that he wanted to plant something in Cornell's heart, and Peter was the farmer for the job. But there was a problem. Peter was totally oblivious to God. This man had followed Jesus for three years. And Peter, if you remember, Peter had a problem with the word never. I don't know about you. I do know about me. There's been times when God has entered into our time together. And he has said, you know, David, this is what I want you to do. This is who I want you to build a relationship with. This is the bridge I want you to cross. This is what I want you to give away. This is what I want you to sacrifice. This is what I want you to share. And there's been times when I said, no, not now. I'm too busy with my agenda. I'm too busy with my schedule. 
God, can't you see how restful and peaceful this is? I'm having a ball over here. I don't need you invading and disrupting and turning my life upside down so that I have to give up some of this stuff to go with you. I'm going to be honest with you. There's times in my life when I've told God no. There's been times when I said yes. But there's also many times, Kenny, where I say maybe or not now. He was comfortable with his relationship. He was a devout Jew. We know that he's comfortable with his relationships, and he had a small circle that he hung out with for three years, and one was missing because they committed suicide. The other one was missing because he was crucified and was raised uh, uh, from the dead and sitting at the right hand of the Father. So he had a pretty small circle at this point in time. But what we know is it's very telling in verses 27 and 29 is when Cornell makes the 35-mile trek, and he stands out in front of Cornelius's house and Cornelius or Cornell comes out and they have a conversation and there's that greeting. You know what I'm talking about? There's that meeting before the big meeting. There's that, we called it in the south, in West Alabama. I always knew going into the deacon's meeting, there was already what you called the meeting behind the barn. And I always knew ahead of time there was a meeting before the meeting. And what the second meeting was really about was trying to maneuver and manipulate and get everybody on board with our agenda. And if you didn't comply to our agenda, you were a rabble rouser. You were a problem. And so they had certain methods of whipping people into shape and getting them on board with their agenda or they would pay a price down the road. This is the meeting before the meeting and Cornelius and Peter are talking on the outside before they go in. And so they get that all settled up about what's going on and they go into the meeting and then Cornell, or, or should I say, Peter says this. And this is Peter's humble, and this is probably as humble as Peter can get at this point, but this is Peter's humble introduction to the assembly. Can you imagine if I walked in here and I gave you this introduction? Talking things over, they went into the house where Cornelius introduced Peter to everyone who had come. Peter, and I'm reading from the message, addressed them. You know, I'm not sure that this is, he says, I'm sure that this is highly irregular. Jews don't do this, visit and relax with people of another race. But God has finally broken through and God has shown me that no race is better than any other. That's quite the humble introductory when you think about it. Here's the important part. There was a barrier between Peter and Cornelius and it was race. There was a barrier between Cornelius and uh, Peter, and it was uh, uh, socioeconomic status, race, different classes of people. And God knew that in order for him to work through Peter, that he had to break Peter down a little bit and bring some sense of equality. If you go about and reading a little bit more about this, Paul was already spearheading this movement. Peter, uh, Paul, if you remember at the time, I'm a Jew of Jews. I'm a Pharisee of Pharisees. I mean, he had memorized the Pentateuch. He had memorized the first books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He was a Pharisee of all Pharisees, and he understood Scripture. But he, God in a vision, spoke to him, and he was now inviting and welcoming and sitting down and supping with Gentiles and Samaritans, the uncircumcised group. So God was already at work in Paul's life, and here he is a day after that he's working in Cornell's life. He begins working in Peter's life, and what he's saying to Peter is this. When you get up in the morning, and when you have your last supper here at the Hilton Garden Inn at Joppa, and you start heading to Caesarea, every person you meet, I want you to see them as perfectly equal to yourself. There's no Greek, there's no Jew, there's no male, there's no female, there's no black, there's no Hispanic, there's no white. Everybody, absolutely everybody you see is equal footing at the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. That's the message. You want to talk about liberation theology? Liberation theology is this, we're all equal. Liberation theology is this, all have sinned. 
All have sinned. All have missed a mark. And the wages of sin is death. There's never been and there will never will be anybody It escapes this principle. The wages of sin is death. And all have sinned. And that creates an equal latitude. That creates a equal place where every individual that ever draws breath in this world stands equally before the cross of Jesus Christ. You want to talk about liberation? That's liberation. When Jesus walks up into your life, when you're beaten down and, and you're hopeless and you're wondering about the meaning and the purpose of life and he walks up into your life and he invades your life and he says, listen, you can go about your business. You can strain at the oars, but I'm telling you, this is the last moment. You continue to strain at the oars. That water's going to pour over and your ship is going to go down, son. Liberation. It's when you're in the storms of life and you let go of the oar and you invite him in. That passage of scripture says he had almost passed them. So focused, so busy, so fighting the system that he almost passed them. Listen, there's going to be people in your life this week that are in a raging storm of their life. Ask her. She sits with them day in and day out. Ask his wife. She sits with them day in and day out. A raging storm, a sea of emotions, the chatter from the world, the values and the beliefs of the world, the opinions of those closest come crashing down on all these people, and they have nowhere to go. And you just happen to be that lighthouse. And they see the light, and they can read the message that says, hey, you're about to crash. You're about to sink your ship. You're about to hurt yourself. You're about to hurt other people around you. You're that lighthouse. And your life is flashing warning, hope, deliverance, future, healing, wholeness. Never discount a 5, 10, 15-minute conversation with somebody who is sitting on a sinking ship. There's far too many people. I like that scene in the Titanic where uh, this ship is tilted, the deck chairs are swaying, and you got the worship team. And people are frantic, and they're climbing over the edges, they're clawing, they're men, grown men are crawling over the top of women and children and pushing them aside. For, that's the world we live in. This world is a titanic. This world is going down and too many churches are sitting there because they're jammed up in their comfort zone. Listen, God enters our comfort zone as individuals and God enters the comfort zone of a church for one reason only and that's to bring us out of that comfort zone because he knows that when we have a comfort zone we insulate ourselves, we isolate ourselves, we have our safe place, we have the judgment-free zone. If we're really sensitive, we wrap ourselves up in bubble wrap and we protect ourselves at all costs that we're going to not let anybody that's not like us, anybody that we don't like, anybody that we don't respect, anybody that's different than us, Anybody that says that they're trapped in this lifestyle, anybody that says this, that's contradicting to the word of God, we isolate ourselves and we dig a trench around us and we say, good luck getting to me. Good luck getting through the trench. And that's where many people are and that's where many churches in our country are right now. They're in the safe zone. They're in the comfort zone. And I want to propose to you, and we have a wonderful pastor that's led us for 25 years, and we have even a more wonderful pastor's spouse, because behind every good man is a much better woman. Is that not true? Amen. We need to celebrate. We need to, this is our 25th year, we need to celebrate. I got a chuckle when we were doing our celebration, and they were putting the uh, pictures up, and and how, uh, 
how we dress. I wasn't with them, but how we dressed back then. I mean, Karis had to dress in the, in the uh, you know, the, the, the uh, look like a doily, right? Everybody wore. <laughs> it's all out of respect. But the dress changes, right? You can think back into the dresses. Everything's changed from the first service. Everything's changed. And kudos to you because we have to change. We have to evolve. We have to, we have to move in the direction that God wants to move us. If we, if we had the same clicker and we dressed the same, people would walk in and say, man, these people are just archaic. They, we, we, they, they can't even connect with us. And we want the world to look at us, and we want the world to look at New River and say, hey, the, these people I can connect with. I can have a relationship with these people. I like these people. I want to hang out with these people. There's really something different about these people. They're not judgmental. They're not critical. They're not going to beat me down. I like to genuinely hang out with the people at New River Church. And that's what God was doing in Peter's life. Hey, I need to do a work in your life so that when you get to Cornell's house, there's going to be assembly that they like you, that they want to hang out with you. Okay, I've been to some churches, this is the truth, I've been to some churches where it's a revival, right? I'm always, uh, I don't know, I'm always taken back when I'm invited to a revival because I just think we should live out revival every day, and revival is really just being obedient to God. It's not so much a feeling, and it's not so much what you see around. Revival is really having a humble obedient heart before God and just saying, yes, God, yes, God, yes, Jesus, yes, Jesus, yes, Holy Spirit, yes, Jesus. That's real revival. And I'm always uh, interested when uh, I go to a revival. And you always know in the South when you go to preach a revival, you already know that there's going to be a nice picnic, right? It's going to be a nice picnic. That's what you're really looking forward to. And so, you know, a lot of times I'd write my, I'd go, I'd go into the fellowship hall and I'd look at it and i go, okay, I'm going to give them a 30-minute revival because the food's not that good. <laughs> but if I walked in there and I saw baby back ribs and fried chicken and I saw that New Orleans seafood boil, I was just going to lay it on them. I was going to give them everything that I got, Kenny, for the next hour and a half to two hours. And before we get to that meal, right? And so <clears throat> the point of the matter is, is we need to adapt to cultures. We need to adapt to other people. We need to be viewed as friendly and likable. We need to be viewed as people that genuine, listen, genuinely, genuinely love people where they're at. It's not that I walk up. And she knows this. It's not that somebody comes into her office and she says or conveys a message, I'll love you and I'll respect you and I'll listen to you when you come around to my line of thinking. Until then, we're going to be strangers. Until then, I'm just going to listen to you, but really what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk to you. I'm not going to hear you until you come around to my line of thinking. Unfortunately, that's how a lot of people think. They have to come to a certain place for me to genuinely love and accept them. Here's a side note. I was sitting behind her family, I want to say two weeks ago. What's your son's name that loves the Lord and sings? That is a special kid. That's the worship that Jesus enjoys. I'm not convinced that Jesus enjoys me saying, I choose to worship you. And I choose to bow down, and I choose to serve you. I don't know if he's really that pleased with me waking up on a Sunday and saying, you know, God, today I'm going to choose you over the fishing pole. But that boy, singing at the top of his lungs, unadulterated, pure worship as it can be, the heavens, the angels shut up. Heaven shuts down to hear that boy sing to Jesus. Listen, he comes into our comfort zone because he wants to rattle our cage and knock us out of our comfort zone. <clears throat> Moving on, secondly, God does some of his best work on the edges of life. Going back to the text, verses 4 through 6, Cornelius stared hard, Cornell stared hard, wondering if he was seeing things, and then he said, what do you want, sir? Hear the humility in that? 
Paul and Peter said, no, never. I never would. Here, a lost man before the angel of the Lord says, what do you want, sir? What do you want, Lord? The angel said, your prayers and your neighborly acts have brought you up to God's attention. Here's what you're to do. Send men to Joppa to get Simon. The one they call Peter, he is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is down by the sea. I want to propose to you that, that God does some of his greatest work on the edges of life and the edges of society. Joppa was not a big town by any stretch of the imagination. Quite honestly, Peter's sitting there having a grand time on a vacation up on the rooftop by the pool, sipping on a, a, a virgin pina colada with the umbrella and the pineapple and the cherries. You know what I'm talking about. He's having a grand old time. And meanwhile, while he's hungry, we know that they're down there preparing him a nice meal. So he's in a very comfortable setting. But he's out on the edge of society. We know that I've been hard on Peter up to this point, but there's some flexibility because Peter is living with a tanner. And we know what a tanner does. A tanner strips the hide off of a dead animal, and a tanner scrapes and scratches and uses chemicals and different liquors. And in fact, if you read it, they actually take a big bucket of dog poop, and they rub it down, and they use all these different chemicals working together, and then they fold that hide up, and they put it up on the rack, and they wait for it to dry out and the hair to fall out. It's a very nasty, disgusting job. And this is where a good Jewish man is living. He's living in a place where he's where someone in the household is touching unclean things and unclean dead animals, but he's still showing some flexibility because he's living there. But he's not flexible enough. All throughout scripture, you can see where God did great work on the edges of society. You think about the creation event in Genesis 1, verse 1. There were no edges for crying out loud. There was nothing. It was a big, deep, dark abyss. And God spoke, let there be light. And he separated seas from the earth. And he created all the edges in the cosmos. Trillions and trillions and trillions of stars. That's how great our God is. That out of nothing, he created everything just by speaking. Imagine what Jesus could do in your life on one day, in one moment, when the Holy Spirit spoke to you in a very real and personal way. Man, that's radical. That the God who created the heavens and the earth would take time to meet with Matt Lyles or David Lemoyne or Doug Rouse or Marvin or Keisha or any other person in the room for that matter. That he would stoop so low from the throne of grace and the throne of worship and the throne of righteousness that this living, high and holy God would stand up and get off his throne and meet with us face-to-face and heart-to-heart. What a radical concept that we don't have to work our way to heaven. What a, radical co- what a radical principle that I don't have to be good enough, pure enough, right enough to yearn my way into heaven for all of eternity. Aren't you glad that you have a pastor who preached through the book of Revelation and gave it to you straight? You go ahead and clap for our pastor. Aren't you glad that you have a pastor that doesn't get up here on Sundays? What the old school would say, milk toast. I'm going to toast a piece of bread, and I'm going to put some milk on it, and I'm going to hit it with some cinnamon and some sugar. And I'm going to give it to him sweet, Kenny. I'm going to give it to him real good. Because after all, I need him to come back next week, and I need him to tithe, and there's some things we got to do. And if I give it to him hard and straight, Kenny, they're not going to be happy about that. We're going to start losing people. Let me tell you something. Sometimes it's good to lose people. Because little is much when God's on it. And if you ever read history, starting in Scripture, Every movement of God, what did he do? He sifted and he separated. Let's send them all down by the water and let's see how they drink. 
And then he took the minority. He was always looking and sifting and sorting. And he never needed the whole group to begin with to get his work done. He is always looking for the remnant. His eyes go to and fro seeking those whose hearts are after me. We're a part of that. We're a part of that calling. And thank God for a pastor that doesn't shy away and give it to us straight. But listen, let's talk about this. God does some of his best work on the edges of life. I'm glad you came back. Uh, I believe it's, uh, is it Bethany? I'm glad you came back. I really enjoyed your testimony two weeks ago. Listen, I couldn't help but think as I was listening to her. She comes across as so kind, so gentle. Now, I'll ask your husband later on if this is the true. <laughs> but I'm going to be honest with you. That was a really touching testimony because you came across as so kind, gentle, caring, loving, but you're on the edge of society. Amen. And you're serving in the edges where it's sharp, it's angry, it's bitter, it's hostile, and they want to do anything and everything yeah. to submerge your ministry. It is a hostile environment out there. Planned Parenthood is not playing softball. They are out to win. And she's on the front lines with caring families, working the edges. And she walks up into a place that's hard, cold, callous, bitter, and angry, and sharp. And anybody else trying to go up into your ministry is going to get sliced. Because I know me, the first time they get up in my grill, we're trading paint. We're going to have a serious conversation about this before we go any further. We're going, to, we're going to set the record straight. I'm going to be respectful to you, and you're going to be respectful to me. At any point in time that this conversation becomes disrespectful in either direction, I'm out of here. You're on your own. She's not like that. I can only imagine what she's heard. I can only imagine what she's had to deal with. We have another person in our uh, congregation today and in our, our assembly today, and, and I really enjoy, uh, I really enjoy uh, Bill Burchell. Uh, he's just a great guy. I wish, I wish I could spend more time with Bill. He, he, uh, he, hits our, uh, he hits Marv's group on Wednesday nights. He sits there quietly, just like he is in the back right there with his arm up. He's all nonchalant and relaxed, and he's smiling for 60 minutes like this. And then at some point in time in the evening, he opens us up his mouth, and it's like EF hunting. Everybody knows, hey, we need to shut up and listen to Bill. Bill's got something to say. We've waited three weeks. He sat like this for three weeks. Three weeks. This is Bill, three weeks. But man, when that arm drops and he leans forward, we got to listen. Bill shared a story. You want to talk about you want, you want to talk about ministering on the edges? Bill shared a story where he was at about 36,000 feet and he was talking to the co-pilot about tithing. <laughs> you want to talk about some risky business, Bill? Right? That's some edgy ministry when you got a co-pilot that you're roughing up about tithing and talking about the benefits of tithing. You're roughing that guy up. No telling what's crossing his mind at 36,000 feet. He's sitting there thinking, I wonder if old Bill's got a parachute. I know how to land this thing. And at this point in time, I don't even care if he has a parachute. I'm just going to put my boot on his backside and get him out of here. The heat's too hot. I can't handle it. Edgy ministries. Okay, uh... Uh, Josie and Scott and our pastor went to uh, a picnic, a gathering. It was a time where they were going to, they honored other organizations, to be fair. We're not elevating New River, but they honored our work at Bowers Elementary. That is an edgy ministry. You know you got it on when a public school will call you and say, hey, we got a list of people that are in need. Can you help us? Listen, the world is proud. The world's arrogant. Nobody likes to come to the church today. We have this lie, separation of church and state, that's not written anywhere in the Constitution. We've made it up based on a letter several years later. But we adhered to the lie, a separation of church and state, 
And we had the world coming to the church saying, help us. That's edgy stuff. I already mentioned Susie, edgy ministries day in and day out with people. Jesus worked on the edges. Think about it. There was one moment where his ministry, I've never heard of this anywhere before, but there was a ministry where Jesus, he said, hey, I'm going to trot down to the local cemetery and I'm going to deliver two people from demons. That's an edgy ministry. What if, what if Doug called you up and said, hey, listen, I got a ministry opportunity for you. We're going to the, gonna go down to the cemetery at 1130 at night. What do you think about that one? He calls me. I'm going to make sure I got that 45 on me, but I'll go down there with him. I'm going to have something protecting me till Jesus shows up. But the point of the matter, it was an edgy ministry at a cemetery. Edgy ministry. Nobody would go and work with the leopards in the leopard colony. For crying out loud, these people had a bell, and they had to ring a bell, and they had to say, I'm, I, I'm, I'm unclean, I'm unclean, I'm unclean. Don't come near me. Keep your safe distance. I'm unclean. Don't touch me. Don't come around me. I got leprosy. You can't touch me. You can't love me. You can't be around me. I'm dangerous. I'm dying. I'll take you with me. I'm unclean. I'm... Do you know how many people come into the church, and they'll never tell you this, but as soon as they hit that door and the worship songs start, they ring their bell inside. And you may not hear it ring, and you may not hear them say this, but they're saying to themselves, because somebody's told them this over and over and over again, you're unclean, you're damaged goods, you'll never amount to anything. You got that? People come into our worship service every Sunday ringing the bell, and the question is, is can we hear the bell? Can we see what they're really saying? Unclean. Unclean, edgy ministries reaching out to people from all different walks of life. Listen, here's the word, and I'm just warming up. Go ahead and give me another one of those to get me going here. There we go, because now we're going to get busy. I'm just warming up. Hear my heart. God is doing a new thing. Because the old thing... Let's be honest, it's not working. There's a passage of scripture where God says, I knitted you, and she knows this, I knitted you together in your mother's womb. That's a picture of intimacy. God's got his hands and he's crafting and he's molding and he's fashioning and he's building and he brings that person into birth and they are unique. They are preordained, predestined for a place and a time among a certain people. They have a unique time and place in the history of all humanity. They are that so unique that if they didn't show up, nobody could fill that spot. Nobody could fill the place. It's an empty seat for all of life here in this entire world. And I want to propose to you that God's not in the business of making cookie-cutter people. He's not in the business of people looking the same, talking the same, dressing the same, acting the same, being the same. That's not attractive. Quite honestly, that's flat out boring. If you took some time and you just jaunted around different churches in the area, you'd start seeing cookie cutter churches. Very little uniqueness. Very little creativity. Sing the same songs, talk the same talk, dress the same way, same attitude, same ministries. God is up to something entirely different because lost people, especially this generation coming up, have no interest in what's going on here and in this place in this hour. And this is a wake-up call. In Isaiah 43, verses 16 through 21, forget about what's happened. Don't keep going over old history. Be alert. Be present. How often when you are having a conversation with somebody, you're not even hearing them. You're just waiting for them to pause so that you can start talking. I find that often in my life. It's something that God's kind of been working in my life is, hey, when your kid comes up to you, you need to be present. 
You need to drop everything, and you need to look at them eye to eye and heart to heart. You need to drop everything. I don't care how important you think it is. When your wife wants your attention, you need to be present, not 95% present. I need to be all in with my wife and with my children. How much more do I need to be all in and present when God speaks? He's just not another interruption. He's not just another person. He's just not another task or duty or chore to do. He's invading my life for a divine reason with divine purposes that have eternal implications. And that's what we have to get in our heart and our soul. That when God speaks and God moves, eternity is at stake. People's well-being is at stake. And we have to be sensitive to that, and we have to yield to that, and we have to honor that. Because again, people's souls are at stake. And how we respond determines large part of what they think about the church, and more importantly, what they actually think about Jesus. And there's too many people that think that Jesus is just too busy for them. He's got more important people to work with, more important things to tend to. And so over the next seven days, if God puts something or somebody in your life, pause, pause. It's going to be an interruption. interruption. I can assure you of that. It's going to be at the least timely moment of the day. And the challenge and the command of a holy God is to be still and to be present and to know that I am God. I'm your God, and I'm their God, and I want you to make a connection with them. And that's what he's asking of us, especially in these hard, sharp edges of life. Listen, as I was thinking and praying through this, I came across uh, a passage of Luke, and I read this passage. Listen. This is Isaiah. Forget about what's happening or what has happened. Don't keep going over old history. Be alert. Be present. I'm about to do something new. It's bursting out. Don't you see it? Some of us see it. Some of us have felt it for a long time. Some of us have been on our knees face before God for a long time, seeing it, knowing it, wanting it, longing for it, interceding for it, praying for it, fasting for it. Some of us have seen it, but wouldn't it be great if all of us saw it? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we all saw this new thing? Wouldn't that be exciting that a creative God with an imagination that's far beyond ours showed up and we got a glimpse of his glory? How exciting would that be if God disrupted us on any particular day, on any particular Sunday, and he invaded our lives, and he said, you know what? I've got something new. I've got something entirely new. i got something so new it's going to blow your mind, and it's going to open your heart to trust me more, to believe me more, to follow me just a little further, to say yes to me instead of saying no and never. Listen, he's up to something new. And he's inviting all of us to embrace that. And I'm hoping and praying that we all can. But the humbling truth is this. He doesn't need all of us to get the job done. He just needs some of us that are humble and broken and yielded to not Jesus as our brother, but to Jesus as our Lord, our King, a holy God. A righteous God that plays no favorites whatsoever. And this is how he's going to institute his new thing is with holiness. Because when he invades my life with holiness, I don't have an excuse. I can't say, oh God, you've got it wrong. I can't say, oh God, maybe later. 
There's a time and place when, yes, God is loving, God is gracious, he's slow to anger, and he's abounding in love. But I know in my life, and I know in many other people's life, there comes a place where Jesus says, enough's enough. I need to get you from Joppa to Caesarea, and the only way I can get you to travel that is if I change your heart and your soul. I have to break you. It's one thing to be broken by God. The world, we expect that. But boy, when God in His holiness invades our soul and He says, hey, listen, you're jealous. You're envious. You covet what He has. You're angry. You're bitter. You're controlling. You're manipulative. That's altogether different. Here's a word for Kenny and Keisha as I was thinking and praying about this. It's found in Luke chapter 5, verses 37 through 39. And we know the story real well. It's talking about new wine bursting old skins. Here's the verses. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the new wine bursts the old skins ruining the skins and spilling the wine. New wine must be put into new skins. Do you hear that? New wine must be put in new skins. That's the message. But no one after drinking the old wine seems to want fresh and the new. The old ways are best, they say. Remember Jesus' first miracle? What did he do? In the old days, what they do is they'd roll out that good stuff. Everybody would enjoy it, and they'd talk about what year, what vineyard, and then they'd get hammered. And at that point in time, the hosts know, now I'm going to move out with the, uh, I'm going to move out with the Mad Dog 2020. <laughs> California coolers, right? I'm gonna move. I'm gonna move. I'm gonna move out that bottle that says "farm" on it. <laughs> Strawberry peach, right? That's when the host says, "I'm gonna give you. You think you got a headache now? Wait till you get a hold of this stuff. This is gonna be a headache for days. You're gonna wish you never showed up to this party." Not Jesus. Not Jesus. He showed up late to the party, and he brought the best to the party. It was so good, even the host said, man, where'd this come from? I know what I bought. I know what I put on the table. This is entirely, where did this come from? Okay. See, in the old days, they had to travel, so they'd take the wine, and they'd put it in this new wine skin, and that new wine skin would get soft and supple, and then the wine would continue to ferment, and that bag, because of the fermenting process, would start growing, and it would actually bloat. So you can only imagine that they probably emptied their wineskin over the course of 35 miles. So by the time they got to Caesarea, they're walking up to the local place or the place of hospitality. In this place, it would be Cornell's house. And they're looking at the wine of a Roman centurion that had money and power and position. They're going, oh, man, I'm going to take this, old, this new wine. I'm going to pour it into my skin because I might have a journey with Jesus here shortly. So I want to stock up on this good stuff. And they're pouring it into the old wineskin. The problem is, is that wine would continue to... To ferment and that old wineskin had already bloated and has gone as far as it could go. It was already stretching at the seams about to pop. And when you put the new wine in, it continues to grow. And what happens? It pops. And all that good stuff falls out on their sandals on the dirt road and they have nothing to drink. And here's the word I know Jesus loves New River because he brought Kenny and Keisha to us. And if Jesus wasn't trying to get us from Joppa to Caesarea, he wouldn't even bother bringing a guide to us. They're new skins, and they're new wine. And if you spent any amount of time with them whatsoever, you know they're different. You know they're different. You know they're different than us. You know they see things differently. They have different experiences. They have different backgrounds. 
everything about Kenny and Keisha is entirely different than the masses here at New River. And that's how I know that Jesus brought this family to our church is because he's up to something new. And that is in no part slighting our pastor. We have a wonderful pastor, and we have a wonderful pastor's wife, a, a, a soulmate and a servant by his side, and she has her own ministry in her own right. She is her own woman, and she's led us. And we worship God week in and week, and we celebrate that as our 25th anniversary. But it's not over, it's not done. There's a new work that requires new wine and new wineskins. And we need to circle this couple. And we need to encourage them and build them up. And we need to protect them from people saying, oh, no, 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 not here. Not here. Here's some old wine we want to put up in you. And God's saying, no, 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 no. I'm doing a new thing with new wine and new skins. And I'm inviting you to taste and to see that the Lord is good. If I wrote that verse, it would say, the Lord is great. How's my time? I don't see Jonathan anywhere. I get a little nervous, you know. I get a little nervous. Am I on the edge? Oh, we're not on the edge. We're done. <laughs> we're over with. All right. Uh, let's wrap this up. Let me, let me check the text, see if those pizza things are coming out of the oven. Yeah, there we go. Hey, listen, I'm going to wrap it up with this. The vision with Peter was not once, not twice, but three times. Peter's denial of Jesus wasn't once, not twice, but three times. Jesus' conversation with Peter wasn't once, not twice, three times. Peter, do you really love me? No, I'm serious, Peter, do you love me? No, Peter, you're not hearing me. Do you really love me? And Peter said, this is all I have to offer. And Jesus says, great, you're at the end of yourself. I can take this. I can work with you. You're finally humbled. You're finally broken. You're not going to tell me never, 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 ever again. Come follow me. I want you to go back over the course of this week. I want you to take a look at your quiet time journals. I want you to think about your small group lessons. I want you to think about the message that you've heard, okay, over the past couple of months. I want you to think about one of the most powerful illustrations I've ever seen in a sermon with Matt Lyles with the two shovels. Because in the same way that God wanted to prepare Peter for Cornelius, he had to tip Peter's whole world upside down. Listen, we cannot go where God wants us to go if we're just saying, forgive me for my many sins. Because I'm the same person day after day, week after week. And the church stays the same. God's holiness is going to meet us. It's going to pervade our congregation. And the question is, is how will we respond to that? Kenny always shares that iceberg where we just see the tip. We've gotten away for a long time with people just seeing the tips of our lives. But God's going to turn that upside down. We have to see the nasty. We have to see the ugly. We have to see the sin. We have to see the rebellion. We have to see the fact that we may have made ourselves our own God. And if too many of ourselves are building our own gods, then what's New River going to look like? Because it's a reflection of a lot of people that have made their own gods and bring them in Sunday after Sunday.
God's going to bring those gods down the same way that he did in, with the, the God of Dagon and David, David's day. You can prop it up, but he's going to bring it down. Not because he doesn't like you, not because he hates you, not because he's mad at you. He's got to bring it down because what's more important to you is lost people being met in genuine, authentic Christian lives, being shared with lost people. In order to get us from Joppa to Caesarea, there has to be an encounter with a holy God because we're comfortable and we like our comfort. And a church that's 25 years old has a comfort zone. And he loves us. He loves us. He loves, he lo hear me, he loves you, he loves us too much to let us stay the same. He loves us as a father loves his children. He loves us so much, he's willing to put his reputation, his name, his relationship on the line and say, I need you to hear me, son, daughter, church. I need you to hear me and I need you to say yes. Because I have divine appointments. And I've spilled into your life a divine, eternal message of hope and freedom and forgiveness. Come on, Kenny, you go ahead and close us out here as Jonathan makes his way. And uh, we'll continue to worship the Lord and be sensitive to our comfort zone and the edgy places of life that he wants to use you over the next seven days. Thanks for listening today. If you'd like more encouragement or information about New River Church, check us out at newriverchurch.org.